missed up through fifth grade uh, to head to your classrooms. For the rest of you, this is your classroom, so go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7 this morning. Uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. You're going to want to have your Bibles in front of you, whether it's on your phone or uh, the old-fashioned way with a book, but you're going to want to have it in front of you uh, in whatever your preferred translation is. I preach out of the ESV, uh, but we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Um, as you're turning there, just want to say uh, good morning, welcome. If you're new with us, my name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors here at Rock Prairie. I just want to uh, say a couple things before we dive into James this morning. Um, and first of all is that uh, we're having our Guatemala mission trip information meeting after church immediately following uh, this service. And so, um, and we have an opportunity this week and an opportunity next week. It should be just a short half hour meeting or so. Just if you're interested at all in going on the trip, we would love for you to be a part of that right after the service um, in the fellowship hall. So that's what will be. Second of all, I am super excited for Trunk or Treat this morning, uh, this, not this morning, this evening. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. I know a lot of you are going to be there. If you're not signed up to volunteer and, at all, uh, uh, just come and, and just see how things are going and, and just be a part of, of what's happening. It's going to be a lot of fun. You're going to want to be there. Uh, and we're just excited too about the opportunities it's going to provide for us to just share the love of Jesus with our community. And so that's what I'm praying for for this evening as we're expecting a lot of people to come through uh, the part of our trunk or treat thing. We're praying that we would be given opportunities to speak the love of Jesus to those who come through and to show the love of Jesus to those who come through. So I ask that you just be praying that along with me. Um, and I'm going to be uh, praying for opportunities to share the gospel while I'm dressed up like a Dalmatian, which uh, doesn't happen very often. So you can tell I'm just super thrilled to be uh, dressing up as a dog tonight. But you know, that's things you do um, because uh, we're for the opportunity that we have. And I'm excited. I hope that you are as well um, for that opportunity tonight. And then third, uh, like has been said, for all of you who dressed up like a pastor uh, today, you look amazing, by the way. You look better than you've ever looked before. Um, so I dressed up like a pastor, too. Like, this is probably what a pastor should wear, should wear a coat. So I've dressed up like a pastor, too. But in all seriousness, man, I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, on behalf of myself and the staff, thank you so, so much for the ways that you have made us feel loved and encouraged and supported uh, through the month of October uh, which has been such a huge blessing from the cards and the gifts and just even the texts and emails just saying thank you. Uh, it just means so, so much and the prayer as well. Um, so thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you. It's been a huge blessing. I got, I had a cool opportunity this week. I got to have lunch with uh, a, a pastor who I actually, uh, so I, the pastor of Castleview Baptist Church down in like Castleton Fishers area. Um, I actually like three lifetimes ago did an internship at that church right before I went to seminary. So it was Emily and my, our first year of marriage and uh, we uh, were living in Upland and then we were going to, we were moving down to Louisville for seminary. But the summer before we packed up all our stuff in our van and we moved into people's basement from that church, and uh, I did an internship um, with that uh, with that church and the pastor who's there, and so we actually, we reconnected, and uh, we got together for lunch. It was the first time we'd gotten together since I'd moved back to Indiana, and so he was asking me, you know, how things had been going and the, and the story of Rock Prairie Church and shared with him uh, <laughs> the story, you know, what, what we've been through uh, since I've been here with um, Pastor Kevin and all the things that have, have gone on since then. And, uh, and just, I said, be honest, it's been the hardest two and a half years of my life and there's just no even comparison. Um, he, and he said, how are you, like, how are you doing as a pastor? You know, how are you doing? I said, 
I just, I got to be honest with you. Um, Emily and I, we had just been talking about this. Sunday morning is, Sunday is the day that we look forward to above every other day, every single week. We love being here, and we love our church family so much. I said, I can't explain it. It's just the Lord, and it's the love, and, that, and just the way that we've been accepted into this body, and the love that the Lord has given us for this church family, and we love it. As hard as it's been, and as much as we would not want to go through the same things we've been through, we don't want to go through it again, but as hard as it's been, there is no place I'd rather be than Rockbury Church in Tipton, Indiana, and just praying that the Lord would give us a long and faithful and fruitful ministry uh, for many, 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 many years. Um, that's our heart and our desire, and so I just want to say again, we just, we feel so, so blessed to be here, and I know, speaking on behalf of the staff as well, it is a blessing to serve this church. Um, so that's just a long-winded way of saying thank you. Um, and uh, just say, I'm so excited about what's to come. I just truly sense, I hope you get this sense, because I, I can keep saying it, but I hope you get this sense as well that this Holy Spirit is moving and working in this place. I got to tell you, it is not out of the ordinary. I love, so I, there's, it's always encouraging when people come up to me after church and say, I love the sermon, or I love the music here, or whatever, especially newer people, but I got to tell you, Time and time again, I've been hearing people, if they're either just visiting from out of town or, they are, um, or they're newer to our church, whatever, they come up and they say, I can't explain it, but the Holy Spirit is just moving in this place. And I hope you get a sense of that too, because I certainly do. God is doing something here in our hearts, and it is the thing that is going to sustain us. There's plenty of things that could discourage us, but we need to continually be on the lookout for the ways that God is moving and let that be the thing that encourages us. Make that be the thing that spurs us on because he's working in this place. Amen? Amen. Amen. Speaking of the Holy Spirit moving, one of the ways that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and our lives is through the preaching of his word, and, uh, which is why I approach this task that I'm given most every Sunday uh, with a fear and trembling in many ways. So let's, uh, if you would just bow your heads with me and let's pray and let's ask that the Lord would uh, give me a humble heart and give us all ears to hear his word this morning. Let's pray. God, you are working. <laughs> You are the way maker, miracle worker. You keep your promises. You are the light in a dark world. And you are always, always, always at work. And we praise you, God. We thank you. Thank you for the joy that it is to serve in this place, in this body privilege of a lifetime. God, we know that you're always at work. We also know that we have an enemy who is also at work, and he will ultimately be defeated. We know the end of the story. He will ultimately lose, but we still have an enemy who's trying to wreak as much destruction as he can before his ultimate defeat, and so we just pray for your protection in this place. That we would be a people who continually put on the full armor of God. That we would be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Fill this place with your spirit, God. And pray that as we look to your word this morning, that you would use it to encourage our hearts, to convict us. That as we look into the mirror, 
and it reveals areas and where we need to grow, God, that we would not be people who turn away and forget what we look like, but that we would change more and more and be conformed more and more to the image of your son, Jesus. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Whew, amen. Well, I said it uh, before, I say this a lot, but uh, I say it a lot because I want you to know it. That's why I say it. So uh, one of the, the, the main goal of preaching, when I'm preaching, my main goal is always to make sure that the main point of the text that I'm preaching from is the main point of the sermon. Sounds simple enough. Whatever the Bible says, what's the main point of that? That should be the main point of what I communicate to our church. It sounds simple, but it's not always that easy. And there's always a temptation as a preacher uh, to get to this place where you're saying, okay, I know what I want to tell everybody. Now let me find the verses to back it up. And that's, that's the backwards way to do it. We don't want to do it that way. We always want God's word to set the agenda for what we are going to preach. And so whoever's up here preaching the word, that is our goal. We look to the text that we're preaching that week. We try to discern and figure out what does it, what's it saying to the original hearers, and then how does that apply to our lives. And a lot of weeks, that is really hard because um, you're, there's a lot of different uh, opinions about what the main point is, and it takes a lot of study. This week, however, we're pretty lucky and blessed because the main point of the text is found right smack dab in the beginning in verse 1. So look there with me, and we're going to see what James wants us to see this morning. He says, let's look in verse 1. My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Show no partiality. We can flip that around and say it the opposite way. If you are holding faith in Jesus, the one who is glorious, the one whose glory surpasses all other glory, if, you're, if you are following him, if you have faith in him, don't show partiality to other people. What's partiality? I looked it up. And the definition of partiality is simply to make unjust distinctions between people by treating one person better than another. So he's saying don't do that. Don't treat one person better than another. Another way to say it is don't show favoritism. Don't show favoritism. That is the main point of our passage this morning. As followers of Jesus, we shouldn't show favoritism. The truth is that as human beings... We are predisposed to show partiality or favoritism towards all sorts of things, right? And that's not necessarily sinful in most of the areas of our life. Like, where, who are my Coca-Cola people? Like, raise your hand if you're a Coke person. All right, raise your hand if you're a Pepsi person. Very good. Our same sweet tea people. We've done this before. Sweet tea and our strange unsweet tea people. I don't understand any of you. All right, it's a little more controversial. Indiana Hoosier fans, raise your hand if you're a Hoosier fan. Raise your hand if you're a Purdue fan. Raise your hand if you're thankful you're not a fan of either of those teams. That's most of us, actually. The point is, we're all predisposed to make certain judgments and have biases about our preferences when it comes to different things, and that's not a problem. But the problem, James says, is when that predisposition to favoritism is applied to people. That's when it becomes a sin. And we talked at the beginning of our James series about the countercultural nature 
of living as the people of God. Being a Christian is countercultural. Last week, we talked about the fact that being a Christian means rejecting the patterns of the world. We should not be surprised as Christians when the world doesn't fit us like a glove. This is an important thing. I almost feel like we need to be reminded of this every single week because as encouraged as we can be when we come together on Sunday, as we're unified in one body, in the spirit, underneath the banner of the gospel, we can be encouraged, but then we go out into the world on Monday and we start to feel that rub because we don't quite fit in. Our values are not the same as the world's values. The things we do are not the same as the things that the world does. And so we start to feel that rub. And I just want to encourage you this morning, if you feel that way on Monday, after worshiping on Sunday, that is a good thing. If you go out into the world and you don't feel any sort of like, man, I don't quite belong here 100%. You don't feel that. And I'd say there's a problem. We're living as Christians for a different kingdom, amen? And so if we're living for a different kingdom, we shouldn't be surprised when we are living in this world and it doesn't quite fit. And we feel it. And it's hard. And like we said last week, it's going to make us weird sometimes. That's a good thing. So as Christians, we're called to live counter-culturally. And I think there, it hap- this happens probably on a lot of levels, but I'm going to talk about three levels that we live counter-culturally this morning. The first is that following Jesus changes what you do. Changes what you do. That's the first level. And we all kind of understand this in some way. Like if you follow Jesus, you are going to do some different things than people who don't follow Jesus. It changes your behavior. At least it really should The second level that following Jesus should change is how you think, right? As Christians, we think differently than the world. Like our sense of what's right and what's wrong, our system of morality. It's just, it's different than the world's. There's going to be times when the world strongly disagrees with what God's word says about certain things. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. Like something strange is happening I think for the most part, we do a pretty good job of understanding that as well. But there's a third level in which being a Christian is countercultural that I don't know if we think about as often. And it's the one that James is talking about in this passage. The third level that following Jesus should really change is that it should radically, as Christians, we should have a radically altered view of the way that we see other people. The way that we see other people. You see, the world tells us that we should view people in many ways in terms of like what they do for us, right? Where they can get us, how rubbing elbows with this person can make me more successful, or how this person makes me feel better about myself, and I need to cut any quote-unquote toxic people out of my life, right? And just people that just like benefit me personally, like my relationships should all be through the lens of how am I personally benefited, That's how the world views people. But God's word calls us to view people in a much different light. And so that's what James is talking about in this passage, and that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about this morning. As followers of Jesus, how are we called to see other people? 
starting in verse 2, he's going to give us an illustration of how this favoritism that he's talking about in verse 1 was probably happening among believers in that day. And after this illustration, he's going to give us two reasons why we can't show favoritism. So that's where we're going. So first, let's look at this illustration that James gives about what, what was happening in the churches. He gives it as if it's a hypothetical scenario, but then later on it's clear that this is actually happening. So this is what he says in verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into, your, uh, and comes into your assembly, which likely means they're just a church service, if a rich man comes in and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, verse 3, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, this is uh, super convicting to me because it's talking about almost our first response when we see people. And in fact, what he's talking about is really something that happens even before you have a conscious thought. I think most of the time when we show favoritism to people, you're not like openly thinking about how am I going to show favoritism to this person. You just don't even, you just do it, which is why it's so dangerous. In verse 4, he says, you've made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. So he's given this hypothetical scenario. Imagine you're in church, two new people walk in to your church, once super rich, wearing nice clothes, bunch of jewelry, second person Kind of smells, is dressed like a homeless person. That idea of shabby clothing is that's talking about like dressed like a homeless person. He says, if you treat those two people differently, if you're crawling all over yourself to give a good seat to the rich person and the poor person is an afterthought, you have committed the sin of showing favoritism. Like I said, this is super convicting. I think we all do this on some level in our lives, like if we're being really honest. In fact, I was convicted this week of ways that I'm like doing this even as I'm preparing to preach on it. We're all in danger of treating people differently according to what they look like outwardly. Sometimes it's based on how wealthy they appear to be. Other times it's how put together their life looks or how attractive they are or what kind of clothes they're wearing. Or sometimes we even show uh, partiality based on race, right? Treating one people one way and other people another way simply by the color of their skin. And that is nothing short of evil. So the question is, why do we do that? Why are we tempted to elevate certain people and ignore others at best, treat them poorly at worst based on what they look like. And I think the answer boils down very simply to what we think other people can do for us, right? What we, what we can get. How rubbing elbows with certain people can benefit us while showing kindness to others might not really help us in any way. And you can see how this temptation would be really strong in the church, can't you? You could even couch this in, like, ministry language. Well, if we can go after the, the more powerful people in the community, the more wealthy people in the community, guess what? What kind of an impact could we have for the kingdom if we do that? That's a sin, James says. 
But it can be super tempting for church leadership to show preferential treatment to people based on how much they give or whatever. And which is a reason, side note, this is a, a reason I, we have a very a practice here at Rock Prayer that I think is extremely healthy that none of the pastors have any access to the uh, giving information here. We just completely locked out from it because we don't, we don't want to think that we would treat people differently, but we don't even want to have that temptation be even like a possibility in our, in our minds, in our hearts. So we protect ourselves from that, and I think it's really wise. It's not only a temptation for those in church leadership. It's a temptation for everyone, right? Treating people differently based on what their perceived value is for you, either financially or in terms of social capital, or on the flip side, being worried that being associated with a certain person might uh, make your reputation take a hit. The problem with this is that it applies a worldly standard to the people of God. Because in the world's eyes, this is like not even a conversation, right? It's like, Pastor Mike, you're describing networking. <laughs> like, this is not, this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to treat people in the way that they can ben- benefit you. But when that thinking creeps its way into the church, into the people of God, James says, this is a big deal. And James gives us two reasons why in the next three verses this is a big deal. First, showing favoritism goes against the gospel. Showing favoritism goes against the very nature of the gospel. Look at verse 5. It says, listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? It's interesting. We're talking about not showing favoritism to the rich over the poor. This almost seems like James is saying God is showing favoritism to the poor over the rich. Is that the case? Well, think about it. There's certain people who describe as something called liberation theology, which you may have heard of, which would say that the gospel is only for the poor. We would disagree. I think that would be taking certain passages out of context. And yet, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We need to be careful, especially in our position, we need to be careful not to just kind of wash away these texts that talk about the advantages of being poor over being rich, especially in our current culture, which obviously prioritizes being rich over being poor. And yet in Scripture, it says over and over again, the exact opposite. It's a few examples Jesus begins teaching in the synagogue in Luke 4. He reads out of Isaiah 61, applies it to himself, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to all people. No, to the poor, he says. It's interesting. Beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But in Luke's version of that, Verse, he actually takes out in spirit, just says, blessed are the poor. Luke 6, again, he says, on the flip side, woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Matthew 19, he says, truly I say to you, 
Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. This is just a few examples. What do we do with this? Like, honestly, we need to, to think about this because what does our culture, what does our society tell us about your wealth? Honestly, our, our culture tells us that your wealth is a direct, in direct proportion to how hard of a worker you are. And if you're a hard worker, then you're a valued member of society. Jesus doesn't say anything like that, really. So what do we do with this? Are you feeling this tension a little bit? Starting to think, Pastor Mike, what are you going to say? Does Jesus really prefer poor people to rich people? If a rich person does come to Jesus, does he like reluctantly accept them? Well, to answer this, we need to think about what's happening in salvation. What's happening in salvation? When you place your faith in Jesus, what's happening in your heart? We need to answer this question to understand the theology that's going on in the Gospels here and really all of New Testament. What kind of posture do you need to have to follow Jesus? Humble. Amen. The absolute beauty of the gospel is that the only heart posture that you need to have is coming to Jesus and saying this, I got nothing to offer you, Jesus. You saved me, it wouldn't benefit you one iota. You have no reason to save me just on the merits of who I am. All I have in my heart is sin, and even my righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Nothing I have is of any value apart from Christ. My possessions mean nothing. My security that I've spent my whole life trying to build up for myself means nothing apart from Christ. My network, even of family and friends who I pour myself into, means nothing apart from Jesus. I need Jesus and Jesus alone, only his righteousness applied to my life, purchased for me on the cross by his blood. Only that is sufficient for the forgiveness of my sins and for my salvation. In the pie chart of who's contributing to my salvation, it's 0% Mike, 100% Jesus. Can I get an amen? That's what's happening in salvation. And that's why Jesus says some of these crazy things in the Gospels. You ever wonder, like, couldn't Jesus have toned it down a little bit and have a better evangelistic strategy? The rich man comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? What would you say if, like, the richest person you know came and said, what do I need to do to, like, I want to join your church. What do I need to do? Join the membership class. We're having, we'll start one for you next week. What did Jesus say? Sell everything. What? Why? Because his wealth was an idol in his heart. That's not the only thing, crazy thing that Jesus says. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you've got to hate your father and mother. What? Why? These can be idols in our hearts that get in the way of submitting everything to Jesus. That's the gospel. 
It's 0% me, 100% Jesus. And so what's happening throughout the New Testament is there's this logic that we see that basically says the more that you have in this world, the more security you have in this world, the harder it's going to be for you to give all that up for security in the next world. You see what he's saying there? The more that you have the harder it's going to be for you to get to that humble position of saying, I got nothing. So who are the poor that are blessed? The people who recognize they've got nothing. Because what do we all have compared to God? The richest man on earth, the poorest man on earth. Compared to God, they're pretty close together, aren't they? We all got nothing. So blessed are the poor because oftentimes it's easier If you have less in this world, to recognize it. But it's still not always the case. It's very easy to be poor in this world and yet still even cling to that what little you have. For every single one of us, it's the recognition that I've got nothing in this world except for Christ. All I have is Christ. wonder why we sing that song. It's because it's true. I've got nothing apart from Jesus. Paul would later write something similar in 1 Corinthians 1. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world, that's us, to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world, that's us, and the despised things, that's us, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. You've been saved so that you can't boast in anything other than Jesus. So bringing it all together, he's saying the more stuff you have, the more wealthy you are, the more successful you appear to be, the more you can actually be hindered from accepting the gospel because you're more tempted to put your faith in your self-sufficiency. So think about the lot. You're you're having to go with me on this logic train that James is giving us. He says if that's true, that it's harder if you are rich to understand that you have nothing, why would you show favoritism to the people who are rich? It's like you're making it doubly hard for them because you're just reinforcing that idea of I'm really something. Why would you show favoritism when that completely contradicts the gospel? Favoritism goes against the very nature of the gospel. You understand that? So as Christians, yes, hear me on this. We're called to work hard We're called to be good stewards of the resources God has given us. And if he's blessed you with much or he's blessed you with little, you are called to use that to honor God. So I'm not saying that it's somehow sinful to be wealthy or to, like, want to grow your business or grow your farm or whatever. Like, expand the resources that you have in a way that honors God. It's a a good thing. But what I'm saying is this has to do with the way that we think about what we have and the way that we view other people in light of their perceived value. One commentator says it like this. This is better than I could think of to say it. He says, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. So, hey, don't be tempted to to think that somehow because you have more than somebody else that you have more worth than them. And certainly don't be tempted to show favoritism toward other people based on what they have because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. God has chosen the poor in spirit, those who recognize their spiritual poverty 
to give the kingdom of heaven. What a thought. That's the first reason we don't show favoritism, because it goes against the very nature of the gospel. Here's the second reason we don't show favoritism. It's a pretty pragmatic argument. It just makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense, James says. It's a very practical argument he's making. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So he says, showing favoritism not only goes against the gospel, it also is just irrational. It doesn't make sense. The rich are the ones who are oppressing you anyway. So clearly what's happening here is there's like this strong distinction between social classes. When James talks about the rich and the poor, like everyone knew where, what category they fell into. I don't know if there was much of a middle class back then. You knew where you were. You knew where you stood. You were rich or you were poor. Most of the believers James is writing to were poor, not all of them. But many of them, because they were in the dispersion, because of the persecution they faced from, their, uh, from following Jesus, they were dispersed from their homes, and they were living in other places, and oftentimes they had to give up everything in order to do that. And so many of the believers that James is writing to is poor, but then it also seems like maybe there are some uh, believers from the rich, the wealthy class, who have, people from the wealthy class who have started following Jesus as well. But there's this distinction and clearly, the rich, those who weren't Christians, who weren't following Jesus, were using their status as the wealthy to oppress those who were poor. They were, I guess, dragging them to court. So somehow, like, even trying to take what little resources the poor did have, they are just trying to take them from them. And they are just making life difficult on them. And not only that, it says they were blaspheming God's name in some way. So James makes this argument saying, not only does favoritism go against the gospel which saved you, it also just make, doesn't make any sense. Why are you sucking up to these people who hate you and are just actively making life worse for you all the time? Why would you do that? I think the main point of what he's saying here is don't pin your hopes on people or things that are ultimately going to harm you. And you can see why it was so tempting for people in James' day to do that. Same reason it's tempting for us. Any number of reasons. Look, look how successful, look how happy, look how wealthy, look how attractive, look how whatever, fill in the blank, that person is. That's who I want to be. That's what I want to be like. If I can just saddle up next to them, maybe they can help me get to where they are. And the irony with that, James says, is it's taking you the exact opposite place that you want to be. So I think for us, the takeaway is simply this. Be careful who you're looking up to. Be careful who your role models are. Be careful who you're trying to imitate. Be careful who you desire to be like. Be careful who you want to impress. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Side note, that's a gutsy statement, isn't it? I'm always amazed by that. I always ask myself, can I say that, honestly? Do what I do because I'm trying to do what Jesus does. Can you say that? Honestly, could you say that to somebody? Hey, just do everything that I do because I'm doing what Jesus 
did. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But getting back to our passage, find people who are imitating Christ to imitate. Don't find people who are imitating the world to imitate. If you're in business, you should be looking up to people who use their careers to impact the kingdom. If you're a lawyer, you should be looking to, for examples of other lawyers who are believers, who are uh, making a great impact for the kingdom of God. If you're a single mom trying to navigate the world, what it looks like for you and for your kids, you should find other moms who are doing an awesome job training their kids to be like Jesus. Like that should be your goal. If you're a middle schooler, where are my middle schoolers? Raise your hands. Come on, guys. Yeah, you should be finding a high schooler who's doing a great job following Jesus in their school. If you're in high school, you should be finding a college student who's like navigating what it looks like to be, follow Jesus as a college student. Whatever situation you're in, it could be anything. You could be a professional skier. You should find another professional skier who's doing a great job following Jesus. saying no matter what situation you're in, don't look up to and try to impress and imitate people who are living and working contrary to the kingdom of God. And it's tempting, man, it is. It's tempting to want to be successful in the world's eyes and just try to use people as much as we can to get there. But James says showing favoritism goes against the gospel and it just doesn't make any sense. This is tough stuff, isn't it? James is tough. We talked about it's a quick start guide to the Christian life, and yet following it is anything but quick or easy. Living these things out is tough. And even if you're not showing favoritism like blatantly in an outward way, like the example James gives, I've just, like I said, I've been convicted several times this week where I've just been tempted to show favoritism, and I'm not even thinking about it. I don't even realize it until after it happened. Like, man... Why did I think that about that person? Why did I not think that about that person? This week even, convicted on that, as I've been preparing for this sermon, and I probably wouldn't even thought a second thought about it if I hadn't been preparing this sermon on this very topic. It's hard. But we're called to see people in a different light. Following Jesus changes how we see other people. It has to. It has to. Just as much as it changes what we do, just as much as it changes how we think. Following Jesus has to change the way that we see other people because God views people differently. And let me just say as we close, thank goodness, right? Thank goodness God doesn't show favoritism. Whew. Thank goodness God doesn't only count us useful or valuable based on what we can produce. How wealthy we are, our gifts, whatever. God doesn't view us like that. You're a child of God. And like any good father, God does not play favorites. He doesn't value us based on our skills and abilities. He uses them, but that's not what gives you value. What you can produce is not what gives you value in the kingdom. Amen? Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who loves you, who love him?
God chose you not because of your awesome gifts, but because he wanted you to be rich in faith. He adopted you into his family, not because of what you've done, but because of who he is. So here's the final thought as we close. If showing favoritism goes against the gospel, then the way we're going to combat showing favoritism is by remembering the gospel. Remembering the gospel is the only thing that's going to keep us from showing favoritism because those of us who are in Christ are rich in faith. We are heirs to the kingdom. We're his beloved children, and the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So we don't view people with the world's eyes, and to the world that's going to be weird. But we view people with God's eyes, those same eyes that looked upon our helpless state and showered us with the love and grace in Christ. So let that be the truth that shapes the way we live. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news that you don't show favoritism. God, the very fact that you have saved us is what brings you glory. Because we don't have anything to offer, offer apart from Christ. So God, help us to allow that truth of the gospel to shape the way that we see other people. We confess ways that we have shown favoritism to others, Lord, that we've ignored the needs of some. Like the story of the Good Samaritan, we've walked right on by too often needs that you put right in front of us, God. Forgive us for that. Help us to see people with your eyes. And help us to remember the eyes that look on us in love and in grace. And may that shape everything that we do. We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.